Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. If you would, open up your Bibles to 2 Peter this morning. Second Peter chapter three. We want to keep on our minds and on our hearts, uh, Brother David, this morning as he um, and and Mr. Edwin are serving, and so I appreciate Blake uh, praying for them. And we are continuing our series through Second Peter. Second Peter, uh, we'll be I'll be walking through chapter three, verses one through nine, and so you can flip there. And I'll read it over us. You can read it along in your heart. And then we will get started. Second Peter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. The Word of God reads this. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing first of all that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray one more time and ask the Lord to bless us. Lord, we do just come to you in dependence and we thank you for your word. Thank you that you preserved it for us. Lord, thank you for the effect that it has on our life, how it confronts us in our sin. Lord, it comforts us in our grief. It shows us Christ Jesus, and I pray now, Lord, that that your spirit would do the work that I cannot do, that he would exalt Christ here among us. As as we look at your word, he would would do that work of conviction. He would do that work of maturity and edification for your body, and I just, uh, I thank you this morning. I depend on you knowing fully that I cannot produce anything good. Apart from you, I agree with the psalmist that says that I have no good apart from you. And Lord, uh, that I can do nothing good of spiritual value apart from you. And so I just pray, God, that you would take control of this time and build your church. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So I appreciated so much that song, and we try and thematically put together our services as a staff. Uh, when we look at the text, we look back at what, what could we improve from last week, and what what can we imp- you plan for in the week to come. And uh, a theme is the second coming, and so I appreciate so much the song choices that uh, focus on uh, that that day when Christ will come, and uh, we look forward to that day and we long for that day. But if you've had any life experience, you know that a hard situation requires hope. Surely you've noticed this, that, that, that among the many things that we're called to do, that hard and difficult and trying situations, it helps to have hope in the midst of those things. I think of working out, and I use these examples hypothetically because that's just not something that I do very often. But the fact of the matter is, is that in the midst of working out or exercising, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty awful. And how many times are we tempted to quit and just give up? But in the midst of that, hopefully you have something that you're looking forward to, uh, just an overall sense of well-being, genes that fit better. Um, I, you, you know, the, the, but, but all throughout that process, uh, we're tempted to just give up. Or even I think about marathon runners. And again, I think about them because I've never run a marathon but the hope and desire to finish well and just the angst that is 26 point whatever miles, way too many of running, that, that it helps to have an end goal, a finish line, a sense of accomplishment that you're pursuing or maybe you're raising money for the St. Jude Marathon or Half Marathon. And so there's, there's this hope of you know, your efforts raising money to help people that are going through cancer treatment. Or the hard days of discipline with your children in the midst of those things that you, you just hope, right? There's a hope one day uh, that this will produce the fruit of righteousness and peace in our home. Um, but you're tempted often to just, it would just be much easier to give up and just let them do their own thing. Well, in the first century, this church that Peter is writing to, and really all churches for all times, is that our hope should be in the return of Jesus. Our hope is, should be set beyond this temporary world. And the return of Christ should be something that is near and dear to our hearts. It should be something that we long for and pray for in our personal lives. And this church was enduring hard and perilous times. They were enemies of the state. They were ridiculed and mocked. And so in the midst of this terrible circumstance, the return of Christ would have been a a serious, well-grounded hope for the believer. And that's the inheritance that we read about this morning in our scripture reading. And so the false teachers... And Satan, working through the false teachers, he's specific in what he wants to target and what he wants to challenge and what he wants to do away with in the life of the Christian. And so when as we look at our text this morning, Peter is confronting false teachers in the church as he has been the entire letter. But this time they're, they're going for the second coming of Christ. Peter examines their teaching, their heretical teaching, and he calls the Christians there to be resolved to stand firm on what the word says about Jesus's second coming. That the false teachers and the devil, they were trying to remove that hope for, for these Christians. 
and what they had their eyes set on. But let's look in the text as it unfolds. And so, um, and it's relevant for us today as well. There, there are uh, higher criticisms and, and, and scholars and skeptics as our culture gets more and more progressive away from uh, biblical Christianity is that, uh, that many today would question the second coming. Many today would write it off as being mystical or mythological and would say that's allegory, that Jesus really isn't coming. They would do away with all supernatural things that are found in the Bible. And uh, the most of all that they definitely don't want to grab hold of is the second coming of Christ. And so it's relevant for our day. And so let's look at the text in chapter three, and we're really going to begin in verse three. Peter writes to them in verse three, and then we're going we're gonna to come back after three and four and look at one and two. But Peter writes in verse three, he says, look at the text. He says, knowing this first of all, first of all. And so the, the call and the challenge and the exhortation that's found in verses one and two is really in light of what he explains in three and four. And that's why it's first in your outline. But first of all, if we're going to uh, put, our, put, our, put our shoes in, in the first century Christian is that we need to expect, expect to be mocked. We must expect to be mocked. Peter says, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. And so he lets them know of first importance that you need to prepare yourself knowing first of all that scoffers will come. Maybe your translation says mockers or scoffers. The idea of mocking or scoffing is, is to deride or to trifle with or to ridicule. And so these, these false teachers will come. He's warning them that scoffers and mockers will come in the last days and they will do what they do, which is scoff and mock. This word is used in Matthew 27. Uh, verse 29, and I'll read this text for us. And it says, after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on Jesus's head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him. And it, the text says, and they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. Peter also says in the last days, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. And that's just in between Jesus's first and second coming. And so that's the time that we live in now. It's the time in which the church that Peter was writing to lived in. But the mockery of God's people is really a common thread throughout the entire Bible. We see the life and ministry of Jesus, and he was ridiculed often. They ridiculed Jesus. They ostracized Jesus. They rejected Jesus. They ridiculed the disciples in the book of Acts. They ridiculed, you can read church history, they ridiculed and scoffed and mocked at the early church fathers and the Puritans and the reformers, as we just learned about, as they were taking a stand against the Catholic church, they were mocked, ridiculed, and burnt at the stake. And in intellectual 21st century, 2017, in the Western intellectual culture, is that Christians who believe the Bible, who are rooted and grounded in biblical Christianity, are the laughing stock of the day. Is that that's what we are. Mockers will come mocking. And really, this is the way most of our persecution has come in the West, as we do have freedoms. And we know that as time goes on, as we saw last week, that those, you know, we're seeing more and more persecution 
in our country. But the majority of the persecution that we have endured has been ridicule. It's been mockery. It's been words thrown at us. That to, progressive in a, to progressives in a post-Christian culture, they look at Bible-believing Christians and they, they say we're simple-minded and anti-intellectual and super-traditional and fundamentalist that the gospel and the word of God and the claims of Christianity are their foolishness to the world. And they always have been and they always will be. If you think about some of the things that we claim to as believers is that telling people that they are not good is extremely offensive, but that's exactly what the Bible tells us. To claim to the inerrancy of the word of God, the perfection of the word of God, that it's without error, that it is the words of God as it claims to be is offensive and we endure mockery and ridicule for those things. The exclusivity of Jesus himself, that he is the only way to the Father. We get mocked for that. Church discipline in some church cultures is viewed as dumb, foolish, and we're mocked for that. Standards for what we watch or what we listen to when it comes to ethics and morality. People just think we're legalistic and too hard and fast and we we need to relax. Or if you begin talking about biblical marriage or biblical dating and courtship, or biblical parenting, you're ridiculed, you're mocked, you're viewed as narrow-minded. The existence of God, sacrificial giving, calling people to repentance, the lordship of Jesus. We could just go on and on and on. That the claims that we hold to are foolishness to the world. They're foolishness to the world. And so Peter is trying to prepare these believers that this is coming. Mockers will come mocking. And eventually Peter is going to get to the encouragement of Psalm 1. That the blessed saints of God are not to sit in the seat of scoffers, But even in the midst of persecution and rejection, that we are to delight in the law of the Lord. It says here that they will come mocking and scoffing. And then it says, look at the text. It says, following their own sinful desires. Peter has made clear the morality of these false teachers that exist within the church. They're vile men. In chapter 2, verse 10, and chapter 2, verse 14, he says that their eyes are full of adultery, that they are following the passions of their flesh and their lust. And so this is significant for us as we understand this principle, that at the root of their mockery of these believers for believing in the second coming is their own sinful desire. Peter is revealing to us the true motive for wanting to reject the second coming of Christ for these false teachers. The motivation for their mockery is to feel better about their sinful desires, that it's a defense mechanism of the fallen heart to justify what it wants, that it begins making fun of, ridiculing, those who believe differently. For these false teachers, again, they were mocking the second coming of Christ. And that mockery, it's it's the expression of a heart that loves its sin. And sin does not want to submit to the authority of the word of God. It wants to reign as the authority. We see that in ourselves and in our own lives. 
The heart seeks to justify what it wants, its wrong cravings, its wrong desires. And at the heart of their denial was a heart that does not want to be held accountable for their actions. And so the motivation for these false teachers is I'm, confront, I'm confronted with my sin. I can reinterpret or do away with the second coming to justify what I'm doing, to justify my actions, to justify my desires. And so if I can, if I can do away with the fact that Jesus is coming to judge sin, then, I, then today I can just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we perish. There is no real reckoning for right and wrong. Their sinful desires drove them to dismiss what is so very clear in the word of God. John MacArthur says that they want an eschatology that fits their conduct. And so they just completely dismissed and reinterpreted the second coming of Jesus. And we see these people today that people might talk about heaven, but there's no way that they would talk about hell where sinners endure punishment. They, they might talk about Jesus, that yes, he's savior, but that whole Lord thing where I'm called to pick up my cross and follow him daily is something that I just don't agree with. They'll talk about God as being a God of love, right? And he is a God of love, but they reinterpret that definition to mean just acceptance of anything all, of all times. John MacArthur says that liberal theology, right, the reinterpretation of the word of God, dismissing its authority, liberal theology is not the product of intellect and reason, but it's the product of immorality. That their sinful desires drove them to reinterpret what the word of God has clearly revealed. The last thing our sin wants to be is to be held accountable. So it closed itself in knowledge, such as the Big Bang Theory, where it will chase every secondary myth. It will dismiss Christianity altogether because of a movie called The Da Vinci Code is that the sinful heart of man is looking for any out, right, to be not held accountable for its sin. Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful. It's deceitful above all things, and it deceives our minds. It deceives the minds of these false teachers that, to the point where they begin to believe in their minds their reinterpretation of the second coming of Jesus so that they don't have to be held accountable for that sin. And that's at the heart of, of every denier of the authority of the word, whether or not they express that with their mouth or intellectually agree with that, that they have an underlying heart issue that does not want to be confronted with the authority of the word of God. And so let's look at their argument. Look at the text. Look at verse four. Peter says they will say, so this is their argument. This is their reason. They'll pose a question first and then they'll explain their reasoning. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And so their claim, if you want to put it candidly, is that Jesus is not coming. They pose it in the form of a question, where is the promise of his coming? And you can kind of hear their sarcasm as they ask this question, where, where's, where's Jesus? You promised, you, you told me, you, yeah, he said he was coming. But, but he's not here. Where is this Jesus that you speak of? And you can almost hear the, the mockers in the day of Noah. Well, where's this rain? You're building a boat. You're an idiot. And they thought he was foolish for building the boat. Where's the rain? And notice as well that they know that he has promised to come. Where is the promise of his coming? 
that they know that Jesus has promised that these are people within the church who are spreading dissension and lies and false teaching that Peter's warning them about. So they've been exposed to the word of God. And Satan, as I said before, is strategic about what he desires to dismiss in the local church. And so the second coming, if you think about it, if they could reinterpret or do away with the second coming of Jesus, it would be a serious blow to the hope of persecuted Christians. Look at their emotional manipulation. That these false teachers were appealing to the emotional instability of first century Christians who would often ask the question of the psalmist, how long, O Lord? How long until you come? We want justice. We want reward for our service. We want a place without sin. We want you. And it was at this weak point that these false teachers were putting pressure. And the longer time went on, the more of a temptation to dismiss it or to question it or to doubt God at his word. Is he coming? We're being persecuted. Christians are being lit on fire, fed to lions. Lord, are you coming? And so you see the emotional manipulation of these false teachers taking advantage of the state of the church. So they pose a sarcastic question, doubting God's word, and then they follow it up with human reasoning, human reasoning as the evidence for their position. Follow along. So he says, the fathers, speaking about, they're speaking about the Old Testament patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So their claim is nothing has changed since then. God has not intervened into history since then, so therefore he's not going to in the end. It's a viewpoint that holds that that God's not really active in his creation, that it's a closed system. The judgment and intervention is not gonna come because, well, he hasn't come since then. John MacArthur says the logic follows this. You could put it this way. I haven't died yet, therefore... I will not die. Pretty pretty sharp reasoning there, isn't it? And their argument was based on, again, selfish man-centered logic and not reliance upon the word of God. And so this human reasoning, right? They've reasoned since he hasn't come back. He won't come back in the end. This reasoning becomes their rule and standard to which everyone else is subject. Every interpretation has to come through their humanistic reasoning. They began with their own wisdom, what they thought, the conclusions that they came to, and they force it to fit into the timeline of the Bible. Instead of allowing the word of God to be the final and ultimate foundation for our authority and interpreting their experience through what the word has clearly revealed. Their conclusions are, you know, we perceive our calculations. I feel like It makes sense to me that their starting point was their human selfish reasoning and not the word of God. Our experiences, our our reason must never be on par with what God has clearly already revealed in his word. The word is our authority, not our experiences. It should never ever be on par with or God forbid above God in his word. Our reasoning is fallen and is subject to our fallen nature. And our viewpoints and the conclusions that we come to are completely subjective versus the objective word of God. And we see this, we see this all over our culture today. That we, when we do not begin with 
God's word as being the authority, the conclusions that we come to are unbiblical and reveal our lack of biblical literacy. One of them, again, just being evolution. So we, we question uh, the God of creation, that he's created everything, and the, our human reasoning, right? Our subjective scientific evidence is forced into the text, and so we can reinterpret the Bible just to say that, right, that evolu- macroevolution is true. Or homosexuality, when we don't begin with what the Bible tells us about sexual desires and wrong sexual desires is that, we can know someone or have a narrative or we may come to a conclusion that maybe what they're doing is not wrong. So instead of starting with the word of God, we start with experience. And, we, and so what people have done where they said, well, these, these relationships are, are good and they're not hurting anybody. So let's try and reinterpret that into the text and maybe change a few Greek words up a little bit. And so we have churches now that affirm same-sex marriage and homosexuality, but it's not just homosexual relationships, but heterosexual relationships. Instead of starting with the foundation of the word of God, when it comes to adultery, we say, well, I'm, my wife kind of neglects me and yeah, I'm not really happy and God wants me to be happy. And so this experience, let me somehow force it into the word. Instead of starting with the authority of the word of God, that marriage is a covenant between one man and one woman for life or lust. We have these worldly human reasonings like, well, I can look, but I can't touch and That is nowhere to be found in the pages of scripture or gossip. We have this justification and this human reasoning for doing the things that we do. Well, you know, I mean, everybody else is talking about this issue. And I mean, I I really don't gossip that often. And so we take human reasoning and we try and force it into the text or lying. But these lies really aren't affecting anyone's life. And they're, they're little white lies. So instead of starting with the authority of God's word that lying is wrong, and we could go on and on and on and on that the authority must be the word of God. God has not intervened, therefore he will not come. This was their reasoning. But then Peter calls, actually at the beginning, let's jump to verse one. He calls them to remember. So in light of these things, in light of the humanistic reasoning of these false prophets, in light of their, their desire to pursue their own sinfulness, he says, remember the prophets and apostles' teaching. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So in light of this teaching, Peter is writing to them to try and stir them up. The word, the phrase stir up can be translated better to wake up fully, to arouse from sleep. It's used in Mark chapter four, verse 38, when the disciples are in the midst of a storm and Jesus is asleep on the boat. It says he was asleep on the boat and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he being aroused, stirred up, rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And so you kind of get a a vivid description of what Peter is trying to do to these first century Christians. He's trying to stir them up. He's trying to remind them really of what he's already written in chapter one about the promises of God. He's trying to stir them up by way of remembrance of what's already been written, not only in chapter one, but in the first letter, first Peter, as we read this morning, the hope of our inheritance. He's stirring them up to remember the word of God, to not fall captive to these false teachers, to shake off the theological sluggishness that exists in apathetic attitude and do not be held captive to what they are putting out. 
Imagine if Peter had laid down because it may seem mean-spirited to confront false teachers. That was probably a temptation in the heart of Peter. What do I really need to confront this false teaching or these false teachers? But he knew that as a pastor, it is irresponsible to allow false teaching to linger without confrontation. That it's a huge responsibility of pastors to guard the flock from false teaching, to wear off wolves. That's a, you see that illustration in a shepherd protecting and guarding his sheep. And it doesn't matter the source of that false teaching either. These were members within the church that Peter was having to confront. I can remember being at a church plant in Tunica. And I probably, I've told this story to some people, and I may have even said it from the pulpit. We were sitting in a small group, and we were going chronologically through the Bible. And this new believer who was trying to learn how to lead and reading his Bible for the first time, he was an adult man too. And so we're going through the, the story of Noah and the flood. And he said, I learned something this week. And it was a group of people. And he said, I learned that God's fallen too. You know, he makes mistakes too, because the text says that God was sorry that he had ever created humanity. And dude, we, had, we had to address that real quick, right? Because you, you follow that rabbit trail down the line and you don't have anything. So it doesn't matter the source of the false teaching that we have to, we have to guard the truth. And our pastor did at the time, lovingly. It doesn't matter if it comes from the Southern Baptist convention or Southern Baptist tradition, anything old, anything new must be evaluated through the perfect and ultimate standard of the word of God. If it's not in step with the word of God, your pastor's have a responsibility as Peter did to stir you up in remembering the truth is that it's a huge responsibility of a pastor to say, this is the truth. Let us walk in it. The prophets did it. Jesus did it. Paul did it. Peter did it. We will do it. Our staff will do it for the sake of the souls under our care. Because as Peter is contemplating the second coming, and he's challenging these believers to remember the second coming and all that will entail when Jesus has comes, he has... N- no doubt he is remembering or thinking about the fact of, of what Hebrews thirteen seventeen communicates, that pastors will be held accountable for the souls that are under his care. And it would be irresponsible and it would be a, it would be a detriment to the body of Christ for him to not confront this false teaching. And so with all the ink that he can muster up, he's trying to stir them up by way of reminder, by way of reminder. And so where, where pressure exists, severe persecution, rejection on the outside, that was going on outside the church, and where mockery and false teaching and reinterpretation exist within the body, reminders are needed. If our environment was pure and our hearts weren't prone to wander, there would be no need for a reminder, but there is great need to be reminded of what the word of God clearly teaches us. There is a constant need in the body of Christ for biblical training, the study of doctrine, that we would think of these things and issues that come at us through a biblical worldview, that we would not be as the believers, as Paul described in Ephesians 4, 14. So we should study the word that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about, listen to me, by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. 
So he calls them to reject the false humanistic reasoning of these false teachers and to lay hold of the certainty of the word of God. He calls them away from their subjective opinions of these corrupt heretics and calls them to the objective, never changing concrete nature of the word of God, which stems from the perfect and pure character of God. He calls them away from the self-appointed authority of these false teachers and calls them to submission under the ultimate authority, which is the word of God. So he says, remember the prophets, follow along. We, I, gotta, I gotta get going here. In this text, he says, remember the prophets. So he's reminding them of what the prophets have said. He's referring to the Old Testament, Old Testament prophets and how they have made clear that Jesus is coming back. We'll just write some of these down because I don't have time to read them. Isaiah 66, verses 15 and 16. Malachi chapter four, verses one through three. Joel chapter two, verse 31, all referencing the great and awesome and terrible day of the Lord. So he says, remember what's been, and this is what they were teaching. They didn't have the full New Testament. They were relying upon the Old Testament to teach Christ in all the scriptures before the, right, the authority of the word of God was closed and his revelation was closed as he continued to speak through his apostles. So he says, not only remember the Old Testament, the prophets, but remember the commandment from the apostles is what he says. So remember the commandment from the, from the apostles. There's a few different interpretations, really just two main interpretations as to what Peter is referencing here. Uh, because the text says, let's see, where's the promise of his coming? No, he says, remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the ESV translated and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. So what commandment is Peter talking about here? Calling them to remember. Um, some say it's the commandment to be alert that Jesus is coming back. But I believe the, 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 the correct interpretation is that he's just referring to the New Testament. So he's referring to all the teachings of Jesus, right? So they were eyewitnesses of Christ. They, they had his stories. They had his teachings. They had his life. But also the authoritative role of the apostle in the first century church, that their writings were inspired. In 23... Of the, new, of the 27 New Testament books makes reference to the, to the second coming, 23 out of 27, a direct reference. And two of those four that aren't directly referenced make an indirect reference. So in, in reality, only two books in the entire New Testament don't make any type of reference or are completely silent on the second coming. Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 24. You can write Matthew 24 down and look at some of those texts tonight in community group. Verse 29, verse 42, be on alert for you do not know in which day your Lord is coming. John chapter 14, I'm going to the Father's house. If I go, I will come again that you, there you will be also. In Acts chapter one, we know the scene after Jesus has ascended into heaven and the disciples are just kind of just kind of standing there looking up and those angels, they say that the, the, your Lord is coming back in the same way in which he ascended. The apostle Paul uh, and Peter both reference the second coming, the entire, almost the entire New Testament does, especially in 2 Thessalonians. Take some time to read 2 Thessalonians. And so Peter's calling them, he says, remember what has been written in the, in the Old and New Testaments and the prophets and the apostles is that we must resolve in our hearts that Christ is coming back because he said he was coming back. 
Very clear, very clear that he is coming back. But not only that, it's that we should examine their teachings. So let's look at verse five. And there is a lot in these next three verses, but we're not gonna be able to talk about all of it. Uh, there's a lot about creation, the nature of creation, how the world was created. But, but the fact that, that Peter is trying to communicate through these verses is that they overlooked that God has created the world. He intervened in creating the world. He intervened in flooding the world in judgment, and he will intervene in the last day. So he's, he's countering their argument. And he's saying that they, verse five says, deliberately overlooked this fact. King James says that they're willfully ignorant of it. Their motive was not to learn, but to be in authority. They deliberately overlooked. They conveniently rewrite the historical account of right, creation and the flood and, and ignore them altogether willingly because they don't want to be confronted with the truth. And so let's look at, let's look at these three things. So they willingly ignored God's intervention in creating the world. So they argue, well, God hasn't intervened since the patriarchs. He's not going to come back. But that entire argument is, I mean, it's based on the fact that God has already intervened in creation. They overlook the fact that, that God created everything out of nothing that the heavens, look at verse five, existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. Is that creation is God's great display of his power, immensity, in, in creating everything out of nothing. The heavens existed long ago in eternity with God. All things were made through him. Without him, not anything was made that was made. John chapter one, verse and so he makes that argument for creation. Like you're ignoring the second coming, but God intervened in, in a massive way in creation. Not only that, but they willingly ignored the flood. Peter goes on to say in verse six, and, and by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So they willingly did not recognize the flood. And this is a huge intervention by God on the entire world. And what was the reason that he intervened? Genesis chapter six, verse five, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so how convenient, right? To, to preserve the desires of their heart, they ignore one of the greatest demonstrations of God's judgment on sin. The flood does not fit into their view. So it's not a lack of knowledge, it's an unwillingness to recognize the plain teaching of the word of God. Because a God who would judge the world by water is a God who would judge the world by fire. And that's where he goes in his next argument. Look at verse seven. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so God promised, he promised he would never destroy the world again by what? By water, but he will destroy it with fire. And we could get into a lot on fire, like the core of the earth, uh, right? The, the heat that just surrounds us and, and splitting the atom. I mean, it's, it's all around us. These are, these are creative reminders that God, right, is going to judge the world with fire. Um, 
We see in the Old Testament, Nadab and Abihu, they offered wrong sacrifices to the Lord in Leviticus chapter 10. And the text says that fire came out and consumed them and killed them on the spot. And so there's pictures all throughout creation. There's pictures all throughout the Old Testament of God judging with fire. And our God is a consuming fire. But then I want to spend a little, little time on the last point, And that's that he calls them to rest in the character of God. He says, do not overlook this one fact. So he refutes, he refutes their false teaching, arguing from the word of God what is very clearly revealed. But then he calls them to rest. He says, do not overlook. So he, he says that the false teachers overlook the fact of creation and the flood. But he's calling believers, don't overlook this fact. You're prone to drift. So he calls believers not to be willfully ignorant of this one truth that that with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And so it's a reference to Psalm 90, verse four, which says, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it's past or but as a watch in the night. And so a thousand years to one day, there's not really, that's not a clue for the Christian numerologist. Fox News published something about the Christian numerologist. That's not a thing. That's not a biblical office. And so we're not supposed to say, like trying to do some Bible math and figure out when Jesus is coming back. Like he's using an analogy here. It's a statement based on God's eternality and timeline being different than our timeline. Is that those Christians and us today, we are consumed with here and now Our eyes lack the eternal scope that we need. And because of this, we often fail to trust in the perfect providence and timing of God. These Christians and us often as well needed a Job experience where in the midst of their persecution and doubt, God answers them out of the whirlwind. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Does the lightning ask you where to strike? And as God, as one man puts it in a song, as God says, is this whole world bending beneath your will? And so Peter is reminding these believers that God does not consider time as we consider time. He is not limited by time, space, or matter. Is that we need to answer him as Job answered him in Job 42 too, that I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And God's timing being perfect is kind of turned into kind of like a cliche. Well, God, Lord's timing is perfect. And we say that all the time, but there really is no other timing than God's timing. Uh, and we do not interpret his promises by, by our limited timeline. Peter is calling these believers... To, to, to realize that the promises of God are not dependent on our ability to believe them or take hold of them. His promises are not dependent on whether or not our fallen human faculties can reason them in our minds or see the evidence clearly of their passing around us that the promises of God that Jesus would come back It's not dependent on human reasoning, but it's dependent on the unchanging character of God. What he says he will do. He cannot be untrue to himself. Arturo Azurdia quotes it this way. He says, his speaking is his doing. The Lord is not slow 
In the very next text, look what Peter says. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. He's talking directly to the false teachers. As some of you count slowness that do not understand the character of God, but says that he is patient. There's a difference between patience and slowness. Slowness assumes that there may be an unwillingness to carry out a specific action. So the fourth time that Bo comes in the living room after we've put him down for bed, like I've told him, like if you get up again, it's, you're, you're gonna get a spanking, okay? But it's, sometimes it's so cute. And so like sometimes I'm slow to carry that out because I'm like, oh, he's asking, you know, he's, he's gotta get something to drink again. And so that slowness to carry out something that I said that I would do, and I, I struggle with that sometimes, but that, that's not what the Lord is, that there's, there's not an unwavering, I mean, that there is an unwavering commitment to what he said he would do and he will do. That's me being wishy-washy based on circumstances. God is not limited by that. I'm delaying what I said I would do because there may be a decisive change in what I really want to do or what is right or what is just. The Lord is not like me. Thank goodness that he is above me and beyond me is that he is patient. And why is he patient? And we'll close with this thought. Psalm 711 says that God is a righteous judge. And that he's a God who feels indignation every single day because of sin. Every single sin is is an eternal offense against a righteous God. Every action, whether actively or passively, every thought, every sinful intention of our hearts is building up a weight of judgment against the Lord of all the earth. Every second that goes by should should astonish us and add to our wonderment that God hasn't incinerated the entire world because he would be just in doing that. He would have been completely just to wipe out Adam and Eve. He would have been completely just to wipe out my rebellious heart after my first breath on October 29th, 1988. But he is patient. Why? He's not intervening in judgment because he's intervening in salvation because he desires that all men reach repentance. He's displaying that beautiful attribute of long suffering with his creation in a creation that demands that they be in charge like a loving, patient father. He is bearing with the sins and transgressions of his children. So like the prodigal son, they might be sought out and found. And what a comfort in the minds of these believers. I know you have pressure all around you that you're being led like lambs to the slaughter under the Roman government and physically you're being threatened. But listen to me, just be patient. God is not slow. He's granting to sinners what he has granted to you in the gospel. And that is hope beyond this world. Do you want to know why it's taking him so long? Because he is saving sinners. He's saving sinners in this momentary affliction. Doesn't compare to the glory that would be revealed to us. And this momentary affliction for us, Peter's writing to them, can't compare to the eternal affliction that lost sinners will experience if they do not repent. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, that they will listen to my voice. So there may be one flock and one shepherd.
God is patient because he desires the repentance of sinners. He's not slow. He's not dragging his feet. Is that when we see an atrocity like we saw last Sunday of Christians being shot down or the numerous Christians that are slaughtered across the world that we're ignorant of, he, he's not dragging his feet. Something like that should, should cause us to say, Lord, come quickly. But we should always be in between two schools of thought. That is, Lord, come quickly, but Lord, continue to display your patience so that my family members, so that our neighbors might come to repentance and be saved. He calls these Christians to rest in the unchanging character of God who is patient. Let's pray. I want to challenge you to think on a few things this morning. I want you to make a resolve in your heart to trust God at his word, that he is good and unchanging. I want you to pray for faith, to believe that we would pray like the disciple. We would pray, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. That we would praise the Lord for his patience in this time as we respond. That we would pray, praise him for how patient he's been with us, how patient he continues to be with this world because he desires people to come to repentance. Now I want you to use this time to examine your hearts for the Lord's Supper. Just ask the Lord as the psalmist did to search you. Lord, search me and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the life everlasting. The truth is, is that we're biased and ignorant a lot of times to the sin in our life. And so just take some time as we respond to ask the Lord to search you, that you might be right with him and right with anyone else in the church. This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, his death for you on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.